You're listening to Queering Daisy. This is your host, Priya. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to Alok Ved Menon, a gender nonconforming writer and performance artist, whose eclectic style and poetic challenge to the gender binary have been internationally renowned. In the course of this conversation, Alok and I chat about their journey, everything from how they found their love of poetry and writing, to community acceptance, as well as the social justice activism that underlines their work. So without much further ado, here's Alok. Welcome to Queering Desi, Alok. It's an honor to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. I would love to start talking about some of your work, but just to like kind of open the discussion, a more general question. How, in general, have you embarked on this journey of self-acceptance? Like, I look at you and as such an icon in our community, you know, being visible and talking about things that people won't talk about. Um, and I wonder for myself, like, how how does that identity fuel your work? And how do you kind of incorporate all of that into into your own journey? Sure. Um, recently, I've been thinking a lot about balance. And I've been realizing that in order for me to reach the heights of self-acceptance and fabulosity that I've achieved, it's because I've had to experience so much repression and violence. Mm. So I'm always trying to think about how do I take and cycle all of the toxicity that has been given to me in my life and to actually repurpose that as something that's like authenticity or beauty or profundity. And I think for me, because I had to spend the first half of my life, I mean, more than half of my life, repressing every part of myself, not just my gender, my sexuality, but my emotionality, my politics, my imagination, my dreams, that coming into my queerness was not just about accepting my gender and sexuality, it was also about accepting my complexity more generally and refusing to sort of have to repress any part of myself. So I sort of took a lot of the repression and violent things um, and shaming that I had experienced growing up, and I thought, how do I actually do something fundamentally different with my life, my identity, and my world? Um, and I, I really believe that it's possible to heal. Like, I think that we often don't talk about that enough. And for me, I really done the difficult and painful work of being able to say that actually repression was so toxic and violent to me that I want to actually give the world my fullness, uh, my complexity as part of that healing. I mean, that's beautiful. And that's that's something that I, I mean, I hate the trope of being like, you're so brave for doing what you do. But I think like, when I hear you, when I hear you speak or do any of your art or read your words, and even as I hear you speak... I think of like the courage that that much must take because a lot of us that might have experienced forms of trauma don't necessarily get to that point, you know, of being able to bring it together and and turn it into something beautiful. So I'm just I'm just curious about how that how that's, you know, fueled you and how does that incorporate kind of the communities that you still work with, right? So if you're carrying your brownness in white spaces or in South Asian spaces and your transness, your you know, your nonconformity, like how does that kind of carry with you now? Sure. Um, you know, I think English will always fail us for many reasons, not just pronouns, but I think also the language is courage and bravery, right? I understand what's 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 being what's being 
like how mm-hmm. could you do this? How could you rise against the insurmountable myth? But I think that what English constantly has to do is to personalize and hyper individualize things that are collective. Mm. So for me, the reason I'm able to do the things I do is because of the supportive friends that I have in my life. Um, and I am the direct result of that. Uh, I think one of the many joys of being queer was that my family wasn't really the best at <laughs> raising me. So I had to find other people to really raise and build me up. And I found other queer people, and especially other queer trans people of color, black people, indigenous people, who really taught me uh, how to love myself and how to love them, and taught me what it's like to actually be a queer trans person, which is something my straight and family could really teach me. And that through that sort of love and nourishment and validation is that I derive the capacity to keep us going. I believe that often in our culture, uh, and I'll speak specifically here in the sort of Hindu upper caste culture that I grew up with, I was um, taught that the way that you grow is by shaming people and um, deriding them and making them feel less than, and that didn't work. <laughs> so when I actually like had people like support me and compliment me and build me up and um, affirm me, that actually was what has and continues to allow me the capacity to keep on going. Um, and then in terms of like how I bring my community to the to play work, um, I think that learning history was really important for me and I, I, I can't underestimate the importance of like being able to say there have always been people like me. And when I say like me, I don't just mean once again trans people or queer people or, or queer people of color or queer foundation people. I also mean lonely people. I mean depressed people. I mean hurt people. I mean anxious people. Um, I mean that there have always been people whose work and whose truth made people repel. And when I think about the people who I admire most for their poetry and their wisdom and their art, I remember that when they were actually alive producing that work, very few people actually saw it for what it was, mm. but they still kept on going. And I think in so many ways that is a queer and trans creative and political tradition to me, which is that despite the constant um, degradation and dismissal and demonization, queer and trans artists across time have found a way to continue to create. And I think that creativity for me is the best form of critique. I think we're saturated in a moment right now where we're hypersaturated with a lot of um, political critique, which is, of course, necessary, but I think as an artist, I'm always asking how do we create something different. Mm-hmm. And I think when I am feeling low or I'm feeling impossible, I try to remember that there have always been queer trans creatives that created something out of nothing, that I created a life for myself when I thought I would die that I created a gender that I didn't think that existed, that there's so much magic in the everyday. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. I have many questions out of your response, but I'm going to start with, like, how did you find this line of creativity? Like, how did you foster that artist within you coming from the communities that you came from that that repressed that, that expression? 
how did you find this love for art and for writing and for performing? Sure. So it's funny that we're speaking now because I'm actually back home in my small town in Texas that I grew up in. Mm. And every time I'm here, I always am sort of just like overwhelmed with all these memories. <laughs> and at a, in my childhood bedroom, which I'm actually speaking to you from right now, mm. is when I really started to write poetry when I was like 12, 12 years old. And I didn't call it poetry at the time. Um, it was just where I went to sort of process a lot of the discrimination and harassment I was experiencing. As I'm sure a lot of people out there listening know, like when you're young and you're clear, you can't speak about the violence happening to you because that outs you and then you experience more violence. So oftentimes we have to internalize the harassment that's going to happen. For me, it was so overwhelming and I needed somewhere to put the pain. And so I just started writing and I didn't think it was poetry, I didn't give art, I just needed, I needed somewhere to put all of it. I'm a cancer, we write things, we find a lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. So I just had a lot of feelings that I could put somewhere. And yeah. I started writing and then I put my stuff online, like when I was 12 or 13 years old, and were very pseudonym. And then people, random strangers across the world would say, like, I like what you're doing, you're really onto something. And that blew my mind. I didn't really think that I was capable of having a creative life. And in a lot of ways, the internet saved my life because I met a lot of random, kind, queer people all across the world who told me that I was an artist and told me in a lot of ways that my life had meaning and worth and that my creativity was important. And I wasn't necessarily getting that validation from my school or my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, once again, that shows a continual theme in my life, and I think in all of our lives, is that the ways that we come into ourselves are through other people. Mm-hmm. That's why I find the language of coming out like so troublesome, because the only way that I was able to really come into my queerness was because I had other people in my life who represented that for me, um, or who taught me. And that's why I don't think like representation is superficial. Like I think it's really important to have strong representation of great trans people of color, of great trans Asian people, because sometimes we're literally dealing with the fact that we think that we're impossible. And so when we see someone else, it gives us permission to exist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that I've talked about on the podcast before, and I've talked about in my own work, is just the, the, the tired trope, especially for brown folks or, or people of color, of coming out just because there's this expectation from from white folks and mainstream folks that, that there's just going to be this huge, like, I don't know, it, look, it feels like voyeuristic almost because they want to know, like, what, like, when did you sit your parents down and come out? And, like, that's not how it works for most of us. And, like, it's so much more than that. It, it starts with, like you said, knowing that you can exist. Like, one of my defining moments of my own journey now, having been over a decade out from it, I can still remember the moment I, too, was sitting in my childhood home and realized, oh, my God, I think I'm attracted to girls. And it was, that is something that, like, still sits with me at this far out rather than like all the times I've had to explain you know my gender or my presentation or my partner or anything to folks like that moment is still something that's so profoundly deep for me and it goes so beyond like the the coming out especially for family and community when it comes to South Asian folks is like seeing folks like I remember going to um, a mudra night at, at that Satrang had in LA and seeing all these beautiful like femme trans non-binary people like performing and just realizing like in that space for the first time that I could be brown or South Asian and queer and it was just something that had never occurred to me before. 
Yeah. And I, what also fascinates me about your work, Alok, is that you talk so much about stuff that people will not address full on. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what your thoughts are, especially in the current age, but just in general, of how like racism and white supremacy is really interconnected with like queer and trans work, if you can speak to that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's really important that we recognize that there's nothing... It's nothing that rebellious about two white men having sex, which is in the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to just think that sexuality and gender are progressive without thinking about race and class and caste um, is misleading. And I think we're in a moment right now where all of the victories, or quote-unquote victories, mm-hmm. of the LGBT movement have really only in victories for white cis men, and that those of us who are women and trans and queer and racialized are still experiencing incredible precarity, violence, and discrimination, but without the, a level of attention, crisis, and emergency, as if it were facing white cis people. I mean, to think about how when Nancy Shepard was tragically murdered, there was national outrage policy. Um, international mobilization, creative uh, memorialization, and yet just a few days ago, another trans woman was murdered in Portland, making her the 10th or 11th trans person murdered this year, and that's a conservative estimate because when trans people die, we're misgendered in our death. And the reason that these deaths don't matter is because these people are trans and women and femme and black and poor and sex workers. And so, for me, it, it, it's not, it shouldn't be controversial to actually state that the brunt of the violence of homophobia and transphobia is faced by trans people, it's, and, and especially faced by black and poor trans people. And I think that what's really upsetting is that now, while we're dealing with unprecedented levels of violence um, at all levels, legislatively, um, discursively, uh, and, and rhetoric in the media and rhetoric on media, uh, the rhetoric in the media and rhetoric, rhetoric in politicians, by politicians, I mean, um, we, we have little to no resources to actually organize against this because a large chunk of our quote-unquote community have stopped giving under the pretense that marriage equality was, was synonymous with full and total equality for our community, mm-hmm. which is really devastating to me. Uh, I think one of the perks of growing up in Texas and, and the small town that I did is that the way that I learned about gender and sexuality was already always linked to race. Mm-hmm. I never really could parse out where I was experiencing racism and where I was experiencing homophobia. Um, where I was already always made to feel as if my family and my communities failed at white gender. Um, we were always called animals, monkeys dirty, wrong, smelly, and I began to realize that it wasn't just that I was gender non-conforming, my gender identity was different, but I was gender non-conforming because I was brown, mm-hmm. and that because I was brown, I would never actually fit into what society sees as a man or a woman, because what it means to be a man or a woman in this country is defined by white supremacy, mm-hmm. and so I think I really am actually grateful to grow up here because so many of the lessons that I learned about the violence that I was experiencing, now I'm able to understand a lot of these theories of intersectionality and the world works because of my own experiences and what I actually understand is that uh, 
talking about homophobia and transphobia without talking about racism and white supremacy and to black racism actually ends up uh, reproducing racism in this country. Mm-hmm. So I actually feel like that rather than challenging racism, the LGBT movement has largely become wedded to it. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think like the marriage equality being like the the win for everyone has been something that has lingered so much longer than I thought it would. And and not that that was the milestone that everyone wanted it to be. You know, trans women were being murdered long before that and have been and still are. And I just I wonder, you know, I work in media. I wonder how we can within the system or outside the system as activists, as trans folk, as non-binary folk, start to change that perception start to like how, like how does one address this how do how do we stop violence against trans and gender non-conforming women of co- trans women of color like how do we how do we do that how do we start to change that conversation um i think it involves like a lot of things i could probably talk about <laughs> this for like hours so <laughs> sure. i think the first thing is that every person needs to actually be honest about what they're going through the secret is even these cis privileged men are still experiencing homophobia all the time. It's just that in this current political moment, they only matter in so much they're proud, confident, and fabulous. And that is what the legacy of homophobia and heterosexism has been, is that queer people only matter for straight people's entertainment. And when you actually ask your people to be honest about what it's like to grow up, what it's like to walk down the street, what it's like to modify how you look like because of perception of violence, you begin to see that almost every single queer person actually has a narrative of violence. Mm-hmm. And that's like, for me, when we're talking about honesty, I think part of the reason that people aren't honest is because they feel like if they're really honest about their entirety, their mental health, their sense of isolation, the incident partner violence that they've experienced, then they feel like they're not going to be worthy of love. And I think that right now, we haven't achieved equality because our love is incumbent on us erasing the very things that are happening to us. Mm-hmm. So I think all for people need to really be able to say and stand firmly in their truth that they, and, and to sit firmly in their truth and to roll firmly in their truth that they um, deserve complexity in the same way that straight and cis people have it. Because I don't think we're there mm-hmm. yet. I think the second thing is to really be very honest and clear that homophobia is a gendered system, and by which I mean that after every single gay rights victory, who do you think that homophobic people took it out on? Who is the backlash against? Who is against trans people? And especially those ones who are gender non-conforming. When they harass people like me, they don't think, oh, this person needs to say their pronouns, they think that's faggot. Mm-hmm. And so we feel that the brunt of homophobia, even if we don't identify as gay, and the problem with the prioritization of love and partnerships and sexuality as a media strategy is it prevented us from actually saying that the reason that most people experience anti-queer violence is on the basis of our gender. So what I often say is that love won because gender didn't. So I wanted to have less conversations about love and relationships and marriage and more conversations about gender nonconformity. And across the board, gender nonconformity has been cut from the social movement issue. Even within the trans movement now, we're not allowed to talk about being physically gender nonconforming. We have to constantly make appeals to being beautiful and respectable, read white women and men. And we're not actually allowed to say the reason we're 
say it's not just about LGBTQ people being in monogamous loving relationships. It's also about LGBTQ people looking different and wearing things that you might not feel comfortable with. But recognizing that all people are entitled to their bodily autonomy. And then I think the third thing is really about funding. It's for me not enough to just have lip service. The reality situation is that trans people are workers and that it's extremely difficult to be able to find stable and secure work, let alone work that offers healthcare if you're a gender non-conforming person and compounded if you're a gender non-conforming person of color in this country. So I think we need to actually start creating more economic opportunities, not just for trans organizations, but also for individual trans people to be able to have stable housing, stable healthcare, and stable lives. I think that a lot of the violence facing trans people have to do with the reality of poverty that many people in our community face, where people often have to stay in abusive partnerships because these people are financially supporting them, have to do kinds of work that are more likely to be criminalized or bailed and lead to incarceration because they were denied economic opportunity in other places. So I noticed that oftentimes people will say, you know, I support the trans community, but when we actually ask for funding and resources to the trans community, they're a cricket. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to see us actually think more about giving and supporting financially and with other resources trans people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I mean, all of those are, are incredibly profound for me just because being able to voice it in that way and, and so succinctly is really powerful. But I also wanted to add to your second thing. It's surprising in a way for me to hear that gender nonconformity, even in trans spaces, can be looked at differently. Like I, I'm gender nonconforming. I dress masculine of center, but I, I'm a cis woman and I often get misgendered. And there's often this sense of like trying of like acceptance being the goal meaning that you have to pass for a certain gender, like you can't be in between. And it's so binary based that the gender nonconformity, I think, is so interesting, not only beyond like the violence against trans people, but also what does it mean when you're working even or talking about trans identities and you're still thinking about it in a really binary way and that there's no room to be like, I am without gender or I am many genders, you know, and it's just you have to pass as one or the other. Totally. And I think this is where it's really important to also name that there are many gender non-conforming people who identify as women and men or like as gay or lesbian who are also experiencing a ton of violence Mm -hmm. that we don't account for when we only see the violence against trans people. Mm -hmm. Like, for me, you don't have to identify as trans the, the violence of the gender binary. And I think that so often we forget that in order to receive and achieve equality in the society, you have to participate in the gender binary. So you have to say, I'm a woman or I'm a man. This is the way to be a woman or a man. You're not allowed to create your own definition of what women and what manhood are. And I think that's what the difference for me about talking about gender nonconformity and challenging the binary and trans politics are. And I, I, I find myself often in a lot of groups with trans activists, like say for example, around the bathroom issue. So there's a lot of trans people who support media campaigns that will have images of binary, beautiful trans people and like a trans man in a women's restroom. Do like, you really want someone who looks like me in a women's restroom? And the assumption there is why would you want someone who looks like a man in a women's restroom? Mm. What that actually does, it actually 
talk about is there are many of us who don't look like men or women who no matter which restroom we use are going to be harassed because people don't feel like we belong there. So maybe the goal should not just be about being able to use a restroom consistent with your gender identity, but maybe we need to challenge why we use a gender bathroom to begin with, right? right? So it's a real political issue where there's a, not just the tension, but a different uh, strategy where I think what a lot of us, what we're trying to do as non-binary and gender conforming activists is to actually ask the world, why are we so insistent on the binary in every way that we define ourselves and our social institutions and how can we challenge that? That feels like a much more ambitious and longer term political project to me. Yeah, definitely. And I also think about even for these spaces or in, in, in non-queer, non-trans or, or sometimes unsafe spaces, um, how how can we find like language? Like, is it? Well, I guess I'll backtrack. First, first, I think of like, is it our job to educate allies and folks? And I don't feel like all the time it is. But the, when there are opportunities to do so in South Asian spaces, especially, it's quite hard. But even in, I guess, English, like you said earlier, it's hard to find the language and the words to do so. So how do you how do you approach this? And you know, sometimes, for example, like I feel guilt if someone misgenders me and I'm like oh it's okay but it like actually wasn't okay and I like say it's okay to make them feel better and then I walk away from that interaction thinking oh wow that was a moment for where I could have either educated someone or really said hey it's not okay here is how you can refer to me or or open up a, a dialogue and of course it's it's not it's almost never safe to do so but at, at the same time like where does that burden of representation fall how do you how do you deal with stuff like that and how do you kind of base that spectrum of like when is this a, an opportunity to speak up and educate and find the language to do so or is it is it my safety and everything else that I need to like take care of myself and exit the situation as soon as possible but but gauging if it's possible to you know start that conversation I don't know if that makes sense sorry <laughs> I lean with the story and I lean with the pain. And 
hurts me that on the one hand you think you care about me and on the other hand you're doing something that actually is really disrespectful to me. Mm. And um, me being here is a gift because I'm committed to you that I only will come here if I'm treated with respect and dignity, right? And I mm. like sort of move from those places and I try to actually impress upon people that mental health is important which I think is like the bigger thing animating this whole dialogue is like when it comes to being misgendered a lot of people say well that's not real violence um, you're just being sensitive but what's inherent in that is a refusal to actually take this out seriously and being misrecognized hurts and actually that emotional hurt is not somehow less than or support to physical pain so it's also about prioritizing your own total health and being like, you know what, well, my mental health is important, so I'm going to advocate for myself and places that I feel like it's being challenged. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think we talked about mental health. How do you take care of yourself? Like the what you what you deal with on a daily basis and the out in the world. Like I, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but like I'll go to work and then you know fight all these battles and get misgendered and try to like fight for representation and visibility. And I I come home and I'm like, why am I tired? <laughs> and you know I just like I just went to my nine to five job. But like here, he, how do we take care of ourselves in that situation? How how do you do it? And and how can folks kind of start to place self-care and take and take that more seriously but place it at the center of the work that we do right um i think i'm lucky in that i i have a performance practice that is like so deeply linked to my emotions so i have the opportunity like a couple nights a week to just literally scream and cry about my problems <laughs> That's a great point. And also, if, if there's no validation of like of that feeling of if, if you're feeling a certain way or if you experience a certain trauma and you come out with a certain emotion, to not know if that's real or not can be really jarring, too. So that's that's a great point. Um, I'll wrap up with a question that I ask all of my guests, which is what advice would you give to your younger self if you could? And younger could mean anything. It could mean yesterday. It could mean a decade ago. Um, but what advice would you give them? it's okay to take your time. I feel like um, we exist in the moment right now where people expect you to be perfect all the time, to know everything, to know all the right language, to know who you are, to know how to describe yourself. And that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And I'm really much more interested in our journeys and our processes than I am in our destination. Mm. And I think 
when I, when I was younger, I felt a lot of shame and guilt about not being able to externalize my identity because I knew I knew that I was not straight. I knew that I was not this, but I was too afraid to actually articulate that to the world. Mm. And um, I think that's totally okay. Like, I have to be afraid and I have to be self-hating in order for me to be the person I am today. Uh, I think that oftentimes after we externalize our queerness, we forget that the people we are were also once other kinds of people, and we needed to be those people in order to be the people we are today. Mm. And I feel like the imperative to like come out, the imperative to know, the imperative, imperative to do, it's all quite exhausting, and I, I want to give people permission, and myself permission, to be able to take our time and figure it out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you, Alok. Are there any future projects that folks can can look out for, or what? Do you, I know you're like doing a bunch of shows and stuff, but any uh, books, or you know, you had Femin Public come out. Like any anything that people can look out for in the future from you. You know, I am always doing so many weird, <laughs> different things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. I think that what I also really, uh, every time I get that question, I'm always like, yes, there are things in the future, but I kind of want to just talk about the now. Yeah, no, definitely. I guess, I guess maybe like so much of what being trans to me is I never thought I would live. Mm. Like, I just didn't. I didn't have a conception of myself being able to live in the time that I'm living right now. Right. I feel like I'm living on stolen time. And one of the ways that that's affected my life is that I really believe in the power of presence. Because I don't know what's going to happen to you or to me tomorrow, but I know what's happening to us right now. And so I really try to actually challenge people to be like, let's not wait for the next album or the next book or the next tweet or the next whatever. Let's actually appreciate and affirm that which is there right now. Well, yeah, that's a great point, and I I absolutely welcome that challenge. I also think about for myself, and and you don't have to dress up if you don't want to, but I I definitely find that challenging at times because I do work in media, because I have to make the actual decision every day to come home, to unplug, to not live on that, like, that constant infiltration of messages. I think when I think about being present, it also creates kind of a panic in me that there's so much I want to do, like when it comes to projects or comes to activist work, you know, outside of the day to day when I'm like, I'm working on these longer projects or these things, like it, it sometimes really stresses me out too, to be like, Oh my God, what if like, I haven't done enough. Like talking about this podcast, like we're wrapping up our first season now. And it's like, I haven't this panic inside me at the really, really gut, you know, bottom of me of saying I haven't done enough, you know, I need to do more. I need to do more. I, I personally have not figured out a way to deal with that. I don't know if that's something you can relate to as well. I think it flares up for me. Um, but then I just really remind myself, like, I'm alive. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Like, our work, our work shouldn't be dependent on our productivity or on, like, our analysis or on our intellect. Like, our work should just be there and undisputed. And I really believe that we have to template the world that we want on the outside, on the inside. Mm. So if we can't affirm ourselves for being, how can we fight for the work that we're doing? Like, I just, I think about that paradox often in our mm. activism, that we, we say that we want a better world, and yet the way that we're fighting for that world is with the old world's logic. 
Mm -hmm. I think we have to do something different. Oh, that's a great point. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Alok. That's all the questions I had for you. Um, can you just let folks know where to to contact you or, or follow you on social media or find out more more info about your upcoming work, if they so choose? Sure. Um, you can find me online. I'm there too much. Probably my favorite place to be really helpful with out there. Instagram.com slash A-L-O-K-Z-M-E-N-O-S. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Alok. I really appreciate your time and, and appreciated talking to you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening.